week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay Review, Famous Past Lives by Pretty Mighty Mighty. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay? Yeah? We have a, uh, we have a guest with us tonight to review an album that... I think it's safe to say this was formative in terms of our, well, I, for me, at least, I don't know, if, I'm not going to speak for you because that'll get me in trouble. But in terms of being in a band and being in Columbus, Ohio, mm-hmm. uh, this was a band that when we got here, we moved here, we were carpetbaggers from the north, moved down to Ohio, <laughs> and uh, we uh, came down to pillage the music scene down here and it didn't turn out quite that way but um sure it one, did yeah one of the first bands i think that we went out and saw was this particular band that i'm speaking of and i think it was almost right around the time that this particular album and i'm speaking of the album famous past lives from the band pretty mighty mighty which came out in 1999 uh it was kind of a game changer in terms of well there are local bands, and then there are local bands, and this was <laughs> much this was different. A local band, <laughs> yes. Is am I speaking out of turn for you, Jay, or were you? Is equally no, absolutely in... okay. It was sort of the textbook for uh, how how can you write uh, songs that have uh, pop elements to them, but they can still be interesting and challenging and uh, different. So yeah, it was it was an awesome time. So joining us from his. Is it a loft? Is it an apartment? Is it a brownstone? Is it a... What is it? From Brooklyn, a, New York. It's a cozy little nest. Mr. John Chin. John, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. And uh, it is, like, I think the first time that I've heard you say your names, your last names, probably pronounced correctly for the first time I've ever heard it. <laughs> <laughs> We were just always Tim and Jay from Stepford. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or Tim and Nicky or Jason Zayak. Or... <laughs> yeah. Well, luckily, there weren't a lot of Tim and Jasons around. That's you know, true. That, uh, that were in the context of us talking about music or whatever was happening. We had the most uh, sort of plain names for guys in a band. It was Tim, Jay, Keith, and Mark. You think that we were like, you know, apostles or something like that. We, there was there was no like like if we'd been in an 80s band we probably would have been you know nikki or ricky or jizzy or something like that well but, even superseding like the actual name you know when you first start to see a band developing you know in the local scene or in you know the band world it's usually like the guy on the left <laughs> you know it's like just yeah. referring to like when you go to see him play it's like you know the guy on the right yeah, the guy with the telly, that yeah. guy. Yep. And then exactly. eventually it becomes known as, you know, Tim or uh, Jay. <laughs> exactly. So we need to get into, this is, this is a, an album. Now, the, your, your later EP is on Spotify and iTunes and stuff like that, but this is an album that some people might not be familiar with because for some reason, and Jay and I were talking about this before the show, this is a kind of a hard-to-find album. It's not on Spotify. It's not on me? iTunes. Yeah, we were just talking about how easy it would be to get it onto those platforms. How is it not there? I don't, that's, I don't know. 
that's why I'm not getting those checks. <laughs> exactly. Come on. Yeah. You could be rolling in it right now. And you got to understand, there is a certain, I don't want to say bounce, but you will definitely feel dig me out effect when a band is on our show. You will literally sell a, an album or two, maybe three, <laughs> from being on our show. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, that's what it's all about. I'm here. Let's that's, do this then. It's powerful. You know, you know that's probably Let's... why Neil uh, ditched out on this because, you know, it's always been his responsibility in the band to make sure stuff like that happens. Like, you know, the oh, album wow. gets on iTunes. And uh, oh. knowing that he would be faced with this question, he probably ditched out oh, so he wouldn't shit. have to answer for it. Answer for it, Neil. Yeah, he'll put it up. So any listeners, you'll have to wait a few days for Neil to put it up, and then it'll be available. Awesome. So we should get into the history of Pretty Mighty Mighty. History of the band. Now, normally I would uh, rattle off a bunch of facts that I got off of Wikipedia and allmusic.com, but... When we have a, an actual member of the band, I like to actually quiz them on the history because it makes me less likely to get stuff wrong. So it helps. Yeah, quiz. it does help. Yeah, it helps. Okay. So like John, quizzes. yes, I'm going to rapid fire series of C. questions, and you can answer them. Bob, I'll take number one. Okay. When and where did Pretty Mighty Mighty form? Texas. I think you're lying. Next question. <laughs> I can hear the Texas accent. It's a small island in the Pacific. Now, uh, high school. Okay. Well, that's not true. We'll say college. Athens, Ohio. Home of Ohio University? Yeah. The original lineup of Pretty Mighty Mighty was? <clears throat> the original lineup was Neil Schmidt, myself, uh, our first bass player, Terry Mannion, uh, Corey Churdar, uh, who actually just came to visit. Uh, we had a blast. Really good time. Um, I haven't seen her in over 10 years. She's been traipsing around the world. Uh, so it's great to uh, have seen her. And uh, we tried to play some songs and couldn't remember anything. Uh, <laughs> then uh, we swapped out bass players for uh, heavyweight John Fitzgerald. And uh, Noel Sayer came on uh, to play some violin. And uh, that's pretty much how it happened. Noel and Corey actually came in just to do some studio stuff, and uh, we had a blast. So uh, it translated into the live show and then uh, kept rolling with it. So when you say studio stuff, that's at OU, and those are in recording classes, or is that afterwards? Yeah, uh, Neil and I were taking, and Fitz actually, uh, were taking uh, recording classes uh, in the telecommunications department, which was basically for broadcast so it was all audio and video production for broadcast. So television, radio, um, you know, a little bit of film production, but not much. And so we would like go to sneak into the studio at night to record, you know, music instead of our actual projects. And you could pretty much jimmy the door with like your student ID or whatever. You know, you would bust in, you know, with a pizza and a six pack of beer or something. And then like there'd be some other band already in there, you know, so it's pretty, uh, <laughs> Pretty popular uh, setup for people to, you know, everyone that was there for broadcast was actually wanting to make movies and make music, and so it's a good time. But we had uh, some nice facilities to take advantage of, so that was cool. So when you're at OU, is that when you 
put out the first uh, Pretty Mighty Mighty releases, and I think those were on Burnt Sienna. Is that correct, or was there? Yeah, stuff yeah, Burnt that? Sienna. Uh, Tony, who eventually bought Bernie's, uh, was putting out records, and uh, he put out uh, our first seven inch was a split, and then we were on like a compilation, and then Tony put out our first uh, full length. Um, on Burnt Sienna, which is, yeah, when we were all together at OU. That's ugly. What year did that come out? Do you remember? 94. Okay. There's a bit of a delay from 1994 to 1999 when this album, Famous Past Lives, comes out. Um, And there's some changes. Can you talk a little bit about what happened between 1994 and 1999? Wow, I don't know, actually. uh, I hadn't even really thought about it. We kind of, well, we moved to Columbus, after school, we all moved back up to Columbus, Ohio, where Neil and I had grown up. Corey was from Toledo, Fitz was from Cincinnati, and Noel was in West Virginia. But we all kind of moved uh, into a house in Columbus. Uh, we were doing a lot of touring and writing a lot. Just wanted to, you know, keep on with that concept as much as possible. Uh, we'd gotten some good press, so it seemed uh, encouraging to keep uh, keep at it. Plus, there was a great music scene in Columbus, so it was uh, easy to like find, find like-minded people to work with. So at some point in there, Corey leaves the band. And was that something that she just was not interested in being in a touring band anymore? Or how, what, what exactly went down with that? I'm not sure exactly if there was a specific breaking point other than the fact that our house was burnt down. <laughs> Whoa! Okay. That might have. I recall that being. <laughs> that, that was a pivotal time, but at that point she was like not around as much. Well, we had been uh, touring a lot, and I think we had some additional compilation uh, spots and a few singles out and stuff like that. But I remember there was a point where we were at uh, this gig in Buffalo, New York, and. Uh, this venue was horrendous. It was totally like the back room was just like literally like sort of this Russian prison vibe with like a swinging, you know, bulb, you know, was the only light source. And it was like definitely a, a hot spot for people to go and like score whatever they needed to uh, get their thing going. Corey is a Hare Krishna practitioner. And so, you know, she would have daily rituals and chants that she needed to do uh, for her practice. And I remember a specific moment we were backstage and, you know, she was doing her thing. Basically the backdrop of what our lives were at that point in time probably didn't match up real well with what she really wanted to do with her life. I think we knew that there was going to be a time in the near future then that she would be moving on. But I don't think there was like a specific instance or an official I'm out of here or you're not in the band anymore or the dog is barking or something like that. (laughs) I think that's how that sort of went down. So the house that you guys all lived in caught on fire? Yeah, there was a uh, there was like a there was an arsonist running around campus. Oh, my uh, God. Setting like houses on fire. There was a, a. you know, this rash of uh, arson crimes that were going on. And in Athens, it was like super common that like everyone had this, you know, giant house with a big front porch 
and everyone had like a couch on the front porch for, mm -hmm. you know, the typical after hours situation. I guess I didn't notice that we were one of the few houses on the block that had a couch on the front porch in uh, Columbus. But uh, yeah, someone uh, late at night lit our couch on fire. It was around Christmas too. Basically, the front of the front of the house went up. <laughs> wow. Well, we all got on the news. You know, we had great press. There was great press. About <laughs> <it>. <laughs> did you drop? Did you name drop the band? Oh yeah, we name dropped. I think I was wearing. <laughs> I think I was wearing my Don't Give Up the Ship t-shirt, which I wore at a lot of gigs, but uh, you know, I'm pretty sure Fitz or maybe Noel was wearing a, a pretty mighty mighty t-shirt. And uh, Excellent. You know, Neil <laughs> Neil being the marketing guy, uh, I'm sure uh, I'm sure he was passing out free CDs to the firemen and news. <laughs> at some point you guys started a recording studio in Columbus. Did that coincide with the recording of Famous Past Lives? Did the, were those two things parallel? You know, I'm not sure. We, we sort of have a uh, history of making a record, putting it out, starting to record a new record and new songs, not putting them out, and then all of a sudden recording a bunch of new songs and putting that out. So it's sort of like in between each record, there's like another record that never gets released. We uh, were actually working at a studio called Thornapple, and uh, we had put some money into the place and sort of partnered with the owner of that studio. And of course it was nice because then we had access to the studio all the time. Uh, eventually we set up shop in our, what well, was our duplex. Uh, Fitz and Noel lived on one side. Actually Noel and Brian Moore from TR lived on one side and Fitz and I lived on the other side. I think that was the initial setup. And then once we brought the gear home, we ended up uh, kind of letting the studio equipment take over the entire apartment. It, it was kind of a great situation. Our landlord was uh, older and sort of not, uh, you know, he was 80 some years old and not really around much. So, you know, we were, we had no problem drilling holes in the floor so we could run guitar cables to the basement. Eventually the fish tank went out uh, to make room for a new bass cabinet and in the kitchen. We had bass cabinets and the basement was guitar amp world. And, uh, you know, it was kind of great. A lot of fun. I'm actually surprised at how uh, well a lot of that stuff came out that we were recording for other bands in there. And that's where we ended up recording our first record, right? Yeah. Is that the, that's on. the Norwich yeah. house. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was that house. Oh, I guess to circle around back to your question. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I believe uh, Famous Past Lives was probably a combination of things from Thornapple, and then we finished it up at uh, the Norwich House. Uh, okay. okay. I would venture to say it was something like that, but I have a feeling that a lot of the uh, stuff we did at Thornapple got uh, lost to time or whatever. So you're saying there's an entire Pretty Mighty Mighty album that's never been heard? Probably not entire, but there's probably a handful of tracks, yeah. Interesting. Every now and then, Neil finds something and sends it to me, and I'm like, that's cool. Who's that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's instrumental or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Never had any vocals for it. The famous Past Lives came out on Derailer Records, which a lot of, when we moved to Columbus, a lot of the, I guess you'd say the bigger bands that we were going out to see, like the Velveteens and Templeton and Bob City, they were all on Derailer. That was seen as like sort of the 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 label at the end of the 90s, beginning mm -hmm. of the 2000s. Can you talk a little, a little bit about Derailer, how you guys ended up on it, and how that was run? 
Well, I think Derailleur was kind of a, uh, you know, as many small city-based or city-focused labels are, it's, you know, sort of a patron of the arts situation. You know, it was basically put together uh, by people that had a lot of faith in certain bands. Like, it, Derailleur didn't necessarily have, like, uh, one vibe. Like, it's not like if you go to you know, a certain metal label, you're going to hear like a lot, you know, all the bands are going to be sort of catered to like a certain style of music. And with Derailleur, I think the interesting thing was uh, Brad Liebling, who was sort of the figurehead of the label. It was sort of like what he liked, you know, what he thought was great. And uh, Joel Treadway, who's a, you know, a big part of the Columbus music scene, you know, as well being heavily involved and uh, I assume financed a lot of that. You know, it was what they thought was good quality stuff. Uh, so there wasn't like a, a single vibe, per se, in terms of a style of music. It was kind of like Derailleur covered a, a variety of styles of music. But I think it was, a you know, a lot of the bands were all in a, a similar place. Like, um, you know, played out a lot, tried to focus on quality shows with other good quality bands and, uh, you know, toured off and on on a uh, semi-professional level. It certainly captured the a, a time and place for Columbus. I mean, it, it particularly, you know, we sort of missed the mid-90s, early-90s Columbus stuff that, um, you know, sort of the gaunt era, mm-hmm. Thomas Jefferson's slave apartment, sort of the, the era that we hear a lot about. And it seemed like Derailleur really came in and it, it at least did a really good job of capturing um, the bands after that, you know. and uh, Sure. So it, it's kind of a. It'd be nice if that stuff was easier, easier to find. But if you can, I think they put a. a I want to say they put out at least one compilation, right? At least a couple compilations. Well, it Joel really did did on Cringe. He put out those Cringe compilations. Yeah, the Cringe comps are great, and those have yeah. a lot of uh, you know similar kind of stuff on it. In two thousand two, uh, you guys put out the normal EP, which was also out on Derailer. Right. And then after that, there's sort of. I don't want to say that the band sort of disappears, but there's, I guess, is it hiatus is a is a good way to put it? I mean, you guys were playing shows here and there, but in 2004, you put out a solo record on a record yeah. label called Reverbose that yes. uh, some people who have listened to this show uh, are probably know that me and Jay were involved with. Possibly. Um, possibly. <laughs> Rumor has it. Rumor has it. <laughs> Um, and then there were some shows with Pretty Mighty Mighty after that, but Billy Peak of One Miranda Sound and also Bicentennial Bear, uh, he played guitar and did some singing on those songs. So was was the band sort of on a, I guess you would say, a, um, a temporary break at any point, or was it just whenever you get to get shows, you'd play them, and that was sort of it, and the solo career sort of took more of a precedent over the band? Well, I mean, we're still together, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> we're still making records. Cool. Uh, it's just a very slow, patient process. Well, I think that, you know, with any, you know, project that takes commitment from all, you know, everyone involved, I think, you know, slowly other things sort of came to the forefront in terms of priorities. And, you know, uh, I don't think any of us you know, feel bad about that or, 
you know, there was never a problem with like, you know, where you see classic band arguments about, you know, hey, you're not in the game anymore. And, you know, if you really cared, you'd get divorced and move into this band van. You know, there was nothing <laughs> like that. But I think, you know, part of it, for me at least, was, I mean, what we wanted to do musically that we thought was exciting and what we thought we were bringing to the table as far as, you know, something new to challenge, you know, listeners maybe uh, a little bit. I felt like there were some other bands that were doing similar stuff better than what we were doing it. And it sort of, you know, pushed me to think, well, maybe we should be, you know, making something else because what I thought we were doing is sort of not challenging the listeners anymore because there's more of it out there. And for the what we were shooting for, I think, was like being well covered as it was. So I think Who that played, oh, I think a lot of popular music just sort of like evolved into that. I mean, locally, you know, since we worked with so many local bands in the studio, it seemed like, I mean, I, I have no, you know, it was obviously not like an intentional thing, but like I could think that like what I thought that like when Corey and I would sing together and what I thought Corey and I were trying to do vocally, I was never a fan of dismemberment plan, but like. I've heard people say that we have things in common with them. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, I would say that the way they do it, they were doing it, you know, much better, if mm. that's the case. And then mm. locally, like, we were working a lot with Marina Sound on making records, and, like, hearing uh, Dan and Billy sing together, you know, that really was, like, satisfying my need to, like, hear stuff written like that. And then, like, with guitar interplay and uh, dissonance, uh, between like two guitar parts or you know two great melodies that you know when you played them at the same time there was dissonance there you know there was a handful of bands that were starting to do that more regularly and like successfully to the point that I didn't feel like I needed to like get up and do that does that make sense mm-hmm. yeah totally <laughs> yeah I just, you know and then when and then when uh, you know Death Cab became really popular it seemed like it was like well okay <laughs> like I think you know towards the you know after the normal EP I, I totally felt like what I was wanting to write you know and couldn't bring together eventually flushed itself out in other bands that became popular and it was like well I guess I'll pass on attempting that because clearly someone else has done it and apparently you know was doing it better than what I thought that we were aiming for so hmm you know, I don't know if that's a popular thing that uh, artists, you know, come to the conclusion of something like that. But I I feel like that's the reality for me, uh, writing-wise. It's just I have very little patience now. Uh, and I'm very aware, since I work in the studio all the time with bands, of, like, what sounds original and authentic and what sounds like it's, you know, coming too much from an influence. So it's almost like, you know, you start to write something and then, like, Six, you know, weeks later, you hear something that's like mildly similar. It's like, well, I got to scrap that. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. I, I, I guess I never thought of you as being that um, aware of what was going on around you. You just sort of seemed like you were focused on what you wanted to do and like impervious to like, you know, um, outside influence. Change, yeah, and changing that vision. So that's really interesting to hear that you were, you almost had like a stewardship sort of feeling about like you were setting out to do 
something specific and you knew what it was way ahead of time, which is, and then listening. I didn't realize that, you know, sort of getting into account, like, what is somebody else doing? And is that well, I, I never really, what I, I never really wanted to. And I think yeah. it was a matter of, you know, like I, uh, you know, Neil's the first person to probably point, point out, you know, for someone that plays music all the time and records music all the time, you know, I don't have any records. So like, I very much like to like stay in a vacuum whenever possible. <laughs> hmm. So I like to, you know, most of the stuff that I listen to is stuff that I've, you know, people that have come to the studio. I would say that's yeah. where most of the stuff that I listen to comes from. You know, I'm really excited about a lot of the stuff that I get to work on. So I haven't really found a need to like seek out things, uh, you know, in a store or something, but of course, constantly people are like, oh, well, you got to listen to this. You should check that out. And so I have this, uh, you know, really scattered record collection of uh, pieces and parts that, you know, don't necessarily constitute a, a, you know, hey, I'm really into this kind of music sort of thing. But mm -hmm. but I think with, um, you know, as I was working with more, you know, popular style music and uh, as a recording engineer and producer, getting into more pop music and working with financially successful acts or saleable music mm -hmm. you know there's a certain amount of producing music like that that is you know methodical and planned out and intentional you know there's not a lot of free reign um it's sort of like you know like uh one of the managers i worked with said uh you know haven't you ever heard the the saying if you hear a hit write it you know mm. which was you know basically like uh you know, I, I was talking to him about a, a guitar sound one day, and I said, well, is this to this or is this to that? And, he was, and, you know, his response was, well, those bands sold millions of records, so go with it. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so it became very, right, like, right, it started right. to become very obvious to me in terms of, like, what was out there and every, every little detail about a recording or a chord structure or a melody was, like, started to, like, haunt me in terms of, like, I didn't want to buy into that concept for my own music. Yeah. Um, so it became almost, it was sort of like caused me to limp. <laughs> well, it was, a, it's a, it was a wounding factor. Is it similar to like, I've always felt like I'm not formally trained in music. And the more I feel like I learn about music that's, theory and chords that's exactly and things, the, yeah, that's exactly the it. less creative I feel. And I feel yes. like the less I knew, the more creative I was. <laughs> totally. You know, I mean, that's, that's exactly know. it. It's a, it's a funny thing. <laughs> the upside of that is that um, you really have to allow yourself to like get into the zone of like singing or playing and writing, you know, mm -hmm. from uh, just sitting down and playing sort of thing. And like when I do get to the point that I'm completely free of, you know, whatever I'm consciously thinking about it, you know, whether it's like, you know, playing louder or turning up the volume or you know, whatever state of mind you have to get yourself in to get there, you know, it feels considerably liberating, <laughs> you know, sure. if you can work yourself into that point. So I really appreciate the times that I can do that and feel that, you know, I do some of my best work now when that's, uh, you know, when that's the case. But yeah, there's definitely a, a, a point where you do it so much and so often that it becomes like, you know, how this is going to work out. And I think that that's another you know, a factor of why we slowed down in terms of playing or working on new records after uh, the normal EP, because it was kind of like with my solo stuff, I 
I was able, uh, you know, really privileged to be able to like pick guys in the music scene that played in a way that I was looking for them to play. Whereas like with the guys in Pretty Mighty Mighty, there was always going to be a, I don't think we were, we weren't tired of the way that we all played with each other, but you know, the discussions and the arguments and like how we did stuff was, it became expected. You know, uh, I remember there was this uh, rehearsal we had one day and, you know, I said uh, to John, the bass player, I said, why are you playing that note over this chord? And uh, his his, uh, response was, uh, because that's the only note that keeps what you're playing from sounding totally lame. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Wow. I don't don't think there's a better response. (laughs) So I think think there was like some, you know, there was... And, and like it wasn't like a, you know it was nothing to be offended by. I think we were just to yeah. the point that we were like, yeah. "Well, okay, that's how this is going." Okay, right, um, right. You know, and uh, <clears throat> and like with uh, Noel, you know, Noel playing, you know, there'd be lots of time in the studio where we would, you know, be arguing with Noel about, you know, you should play this, you should play that. Here's how we want it to be played, you know, and his his just like utmost refusal to like sit in the you know, sit into the pocket where we all wanted him to. Mm-hmm. And years later, after the fact, having discussions about, you know, his playing with other people, you know, it was apparently this, their favorite thing about the music was that you could hear the tension that, you know, not just in the obvious dissonance, but in the fact that like what his performance was, was completely fighting with where I was trying to go with it. And in hindsight, I think I can really appreciate that, but. Well, that's a great segue for the album, I think. We want to cool. jump into the first yeah. uh, song because I think that's a that is a um, a theme that I think runs throughout through this whole record that that makes it uh, so good. You had mentioned the violin, which on a lot of the album it doesn't sound like a violin. Which when when we would talk to people and they would say, well, you know, uh, a good comparison for Pretty Mighty Mighty would be like Verbo, but Verbo sounds like you're playing a violin or a, you know stringed instrument where um Noel's playing is very much dis- there's distortion which you don't hear on most violin parts in songs there's weird effects going on yeah i got a lot of compliments for for Noel's playing <laughs> <laughs> well that's yeah i mean that's uh there's i mean overall for the for the whole for the whole record and for the band uh, at least this era of the band i mean it's defined by the interplay between your guitar and his violin and at first it's a little bit confusing and disorienting but once you sort of get yeah tell me about it used to it <laughs> it kind of becomes fun years after too to sort of you know even now you know tim and i were just talking before we started this you know as we're going track by track find trying to figure out like i love that part but is that john or is that noel like i have no idea <laughs> who's playing yeah, we, that and what well, we what, never what got used that. to it yeah <laughs> Like uh, playing gigs all the time when we were touring, it was on that record especially. It was, uh, you know, the sound guy would say, "Well, you want some of that violin in your monitor?" And like everyone, all of us would be like, "No, uh, <laughs> we do not want to know what's going on over there." <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Beauty, how about talking to the top, you're on a star. 
one of the big changes from this record to Ugly is that you're singing alone. Corey's not singing with you anymore. How did that affect you vocally? Were you writing all of the melodies and the lyrics for the first record and she was just singing with you or was she contributing as well uh, lyrics and melodies on, on the first record on the first record on ugly it was definitely a half and half thing uh i mean we both equally shared a lot of that heard a lot of that i think with um i mean my background singing wise is a tenor in choir so i have this penchant for singing the harmony part instead of the the melody part. So I think with on Ugly, it seemed like what I thought when I thought I was singing the lead vocal, once Corey's track was on there, I think it sounded more like she was singing the lead and I was singing the harmony part. Hmm. And then I think with Famous Past Lives, I think I was still in that zone, so not really thinking much about it. I think Neil actually had a lot of great lyrical uh, contributions and uh, like, uh, Best of the Worst was a Neil concept and uh, a lot of those lines are his you know I think uh, John got involved as well with arrangement of the vocals on that record so there was definitely some like stepping up by the other guys to uh, add some direction after Corey left you mentioned about you singing the harmony one of the things that is prevalent on, on this record and it comes out right on the first one is that you do a lot of counter melodies with yourself is that easier to do because you're used to doing or singing the harmony part that you're just comfortable writing counter melodies or was that or, or working with also with another vocalist prior was that something that you guys I like uh, you know lines intertwining <laughs> I like uh, you know multiple vocal parts going on and uh, you know with the choral background I definitely like harmonies a lot I think the other thing too is it I mean thinking about it now that you mention it I don't know if I've ever thought about it this way or verbalized it, but it also may have been because I was trying to distract from what I thought was not a solid lead vocal melody. <laughs> Interesting. I think we've done a little of that ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think John contributed to that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> On track one, album one. <laughs> yeah. I don't think this uh, is really a hook. Why don't we write a counter melody that maybe is a hook? <laughs> Let's <Maybe>. try that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, something interesting that I think uh, a note that Tim made on, on track two, Media King, is uh, he actually took the, the song to somebody who's way more qualified than, than either of us to talk about uh, from, from a pure music standpoint what's going on. He, he let his wife listen to it, and she she tried to dissect what exactly Noel was doing uh, with the violin and she uh, she said it sounded like he was playing a dissonant seven, seventh opposite the guitar picking very possible so, yeah yeah, I mean, it's, it, yeah that's, what that, that's just, what that droning note is yes. yeah and it's
it brought it to me, and I think you you hit on it a little bit was, you know, it sounds like you guys weren't even fully aware of what he was doing during you know sort of the writing of this material that were rehearsals. It wasn't until maybe you got into the studio that you really got a sense of like what kind of madness he was he was uh, concocting over there on the other side of the room. Is that true or? Well, for us, it was a matter of, uh, you know, we just wanted them to play the same thing, whatever it was. You know, <laughs> like, you know, when, think when, when you're, well, when, yeah, when you're in practice, it's like, oh, well, yeah. uh, I guess that's the bass part because I've heard it four times now. You know, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know uh, <laughs> no, I mean, when you play the song, you know, the entire yeah, song, yeah. not like, yeah. not like, you know, anyway. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's a matter of like, uh, Every now and then we'd key into like what was going on over there, and there never seemed to be like a "this is the violin part," you know. Oh. It, was just, it was just always a freeform thing, and I think that's what he loved about playing in the band. Uh, he played in a bluegrass band, which is a little more freeform, but still within a, you know, a key. Or, right. Uh, and there was a structure to it or a form, and then of course he played with an orchestra, so that was very strict, regimented, and uh, you know, with us we could let him. You know, we encouraged, you know, distortion pedals, delay pedals, whatever he wanted to, you know, plug into. And it was, uh, on one hand, it was great to see him so free to, like, do whatever he wanted. On the other hand, it was almost like, dude, get a grip. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I have to ask something about this song, because there's a lyric in it that I think is kind of a favorite amongst a lot of people who have heard this record, especially people who are musicians. I know that uh, it's been even sung by other musicians, uh, worked into their songs, and it's the line that goes, and Jay and I were debating this, so we want to get your clarification. It's the line that goes, nothing's going to wake me from my sleep, lest it's a job that I want to keep, and I can't tell if there is such a... What is the last word? Because I thought it said plain as in like a plane of existence, but Jay thought yes. it was place. No. It's plane. Tim gets the cookie. <laughs> oh, damn it. Yes. <laughs> I don't listen to lyrics anyway. Neither do I. <laughs> We've already covered that. <laughs> yeah. That is, that's been covered on this show. And I, well, I, and I said, it, I think it's a favorite of a lot of musicians because it's sort of, you know, when you're in you your 20s and 30s, it kind of plays to that idea of like, I'm a, I'm a musician and this is my thing and I'm not going to Well, that's the concept. The- but, now that, but now that you've mentioned like the entire phrase concept, plane of existence, I feel like it's like a Rush song or something, you know. It's, <laughs> it's like mystical realm or something. Is this your answer to 2112? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's more subdivisions than 2112. But let's yeah. move on. We got to talk about Ski Instructor because this is a song that, well, quite frankly, if you lived in Columbus, you probably got sick of this song because it was played on CD 101 so much back in 1999 and 2000. Were you guys guys expecting this to be sort of the single from the record? I don't know if you even had a plan for a single. We did, and this was absolutely not the plan. Okay. Um, what, what was your what was like your thought when CD101 picked this up? Andy Mann was a you know really big supporter and uh, a fan and uh, you know a great guy to always want to work on local music into the uh, you know the playlist. Uh, but I think when we sent it down there, 
I think the plan with the initial release of that record, I think we even had stickers on the, the uh, shrink wrap that I think listed uh, best of the worst as like what we thought was going to be the single. Because mm-hmm. um, we thought for the music that we did that the chorus was the most like, you know, radio sort of ready chorus. Um, it, I mean, it was like, it was 4-4. Four, four. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I thought that would be an obvious choice, and you know, relatively poppy. Uh, but you know, Andy Man, I think called one day and said, "Hey, I uh, can't not listen to this song, or I can't stop listening to this song. So we're going to start playing this song." And I thought it was outrageous because the the intro in that uh, I guess what you'd call the instrumental hook is so abrasive that I'm surprised that anyone would uh, you know air it. But uh, we actually found that sort of across the country, there were some, you know, college stations and some other uh, radio stations that really picked up on it. So, yeah, is that mixed meter? What's going on in the in the verses and the and then you mentioned in the breakdown because it's a really odd. You have to sort of lock into the sixteenth note pattern of the um, of the hi hat, I think, because it's well, I think otherwise it's... you're bouncing around like kind of weird what's what how did that come about where was that written uh, was it a guitar part yeah i mean it all <laughs> it all it all sort of seems to make sense to me i well, think you do know it's it, a weird time signature though or not time not time signature because it's actually i think it's four four but it's where you place the accents exactly The instrumental part is in seven, but I don't think any of us thought of it as seven. It's like you said, just where the accent is, you know, across a couple different measures. But I mean, I don't think we ever said, hey, let's do some crazy time signature thing. It just seemed like I wrote a part that made sense to me and hopefully the other guys, you know, would get on it. And I think that was uh, part of like where the tension comes from, because I think we're all like interpreting it slightly differently. So I think, however, that, you know, combination of interpretations of, like, where the beat is 
Because there's usually, uh, you know, in rehearsals, there was usually like, okay, here's the part. And then Neil and John would sort of, you know, discuss, you know, about, hey, this is where the beat is and this is where we should change. And I think I was probably constantly like, well, that's not really what I'm thinking, but let's move on for the sake of finishing the song. <laughs> right, right, right. But that's crucial, but, that, give, that give in. Oh, like, totally. You had well, a I mean, you had vision think, and you're willing to take a step back and let them sort of make a suggestion and then go with it instead of like forcing like, no, this is the way it's played. I'm going to play it the way it's played. Well, you I mean, send up I, to you guys I, playing you different know, songs. I very, I very much so trust and respect like what those guys, you know, their interpretation, obviously, and uh, right. you know, love them as musicians. So it's always great to allow that to happen. So I mean, that's why you know later on when I did, uh, I can't believe you live like when I did that solo record. It was, um, you know, I was in the mood to put some music together and not have that sort of collaboration as much. It was more mm -hmm. like. You know, I wanted a minute and a half long song that had one and a half parts. <laughs> no right, discussion. Right. <laughs> yeah. Or but when I you brought us brought a song brought a part and you you would get a reply from other musicians that you'd expect. That seems to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wanted something that seemed obvious to me. But, uh, okay. Yeah, I think with um, you know getting back to Ski Instructor, I think it was a great example of everyone just sort of going with their interpretation of it. The result of that is what's on the record. Can you talk a little think, bit about the? Yeah, I, I, just, I think you're gonna ask the same thing. Just lyrically, you know, yeah. what is this song about? It, it's sort of like I would say in, in the most generic sense, it would be what I call a story song in terms of there's it's like time, song. place, references, and, and it's characters. another love song. It's it's, it's yet, a love song. yet another love song, <laughs> spiteful love song about how it didn't work out. You know, I think once again, much like Best of the Worst, I think Neil had some great input on the song for that. As, as so I you recall. had sort of a Simon and Garfunkel yes. uh, relationship, is what you're saying. So I had the big hair at the time. <laughs> <laughs> I think he has more now. That's true. So would yeah. you do like the bulk of the lyric writing and then he would sort of, oh, why don't you say this instead of that? Is, that? is that what you mean by his input or how would that work uh, out? I don't really recall. Like, I think there would be a... a Hey, you know, I'm just not really getting together on the lyrics on this. He'd be like, "Well, how about I was thinking about something the other day that was like, blah blah blah." I don't, I don't really recall exactly how that comes together, but uh, yeah. I certainly wouldn't want to discount the fact that you know he did have some input. So. Yeah. But I mean, you know, lyrically on Ski Instructor specifically, it's definitely like far too dramatic that I don't think Neil would claim any of those lyrics. <laughs> or melodramatic you know very uh, over the top like that so. so on track four one of the things that sort of stuck out stood out to me was that it became apparent now listening to what one of the things that noel brought to the band in terms of violin is that he did things that you couldn't do in any other instrument so like i think the beginning of this there's like the the fast note is him correct i think it's like a 30-second note or 16th note or something. I, I actually think Noel could have done that on any instrument. Really? But, you know, it's nice. it was cool that it was on a violin, but I yeah. think Noel could have really... I mean, it's like Desenzo. You know, he's a great communicator through an instrument. Right. Um, well, it almost sounds like a, like a synthesizer. Like you'd, you'd hit something, like some sort of a effect on a synthesizer, but it's being done on a, you know, an organic instrument instead of a digital instrument. Uh, you know, quite honestly, I'd have to hear it. I don't even know what we're talking about. 
Scratch, <laughs> that violin. <laughs> yeah, that part. John, didn't you go back and review the record before? <laughs> that that was clearly a part of the... Uh... It's the kind of thing, like, if you were to play that on guitar, it would sound like Steve Vai or something. Well, right. we also but had a couple... We, we had some... Uh, I mean, part of the record was done on uh, Tape Machine, and part of it was done on ADATS. And I think uh, Fitz had bought, like, a little sampler. So we had some, like, toys laying around as well, so... We always like to incorporate some sort of, hey, let's see if this thing can make a sound, oh. you know. So it might have been something like that, or uh, you know, Noel had some crazy delay pedals that would do looping and uh, you know ring modulators. So it's anyone's guess at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it is, it's pretty cool sounding. You have to go uh, back to the archives and figure it out. It sound tone wise, it sounds guitar ish, but like the attack and everything sounds. Not like, I guess it could be, but my guess. And, and well, I like I like, like backwards guitar. Might be some backwards guitar. Oh yeah, yeah. If you guys were playing around with other effects, it could be almost anything. I mean, really. Yeah. Well, when we had the tape machine, we would we would do a lot of backwards stuff just to see if it would come out, and uh, we were surprised at how often you know lightning would strike in that regards. Well, then, how did that affect your ability to play it live as a band? Were there songs that you just didn't try to play live because of that? And I'm thinking of like this song and Tubby would be another one where they seem to have yeah. some studio aspects to them. I'm some thinking magic. in terms of, yeah, some studio magic. In Tubby, especially, there's the part at like 2:20. The song sort of shrinks and breaks down, and I know that there's like an effect going on there. And I don't know how you would make the drums actually shrink down to sounding like they were in another room when you're playing them live. So were, were some of these strictly like studio constructions in terms of songs? Well, to mimic the effect in Tubby, you would have to set up. You'd have to play the song, uh, you know, live in the venue or whatever. And then at that point in time, you'd have to throw on a spotlight on a pair of headphones in the middle of the audience. <laughs> and then the mixer would be routed to that instead of the PA speakers. That'd be I mean, kind, that, of kind of awesome. I mean, that's what we ended up doing <laughs> in the studio to do that was we ran the mix through a set of headphones and then mic'd that. And so that on the on the record, on the recording, that's what happens at that point is it's, it's literally a, a 
the music being played through a set of headphones for that little bridge part. And I don't think it was a, you know, uh, let's just do this as a studio thing. But I think that, you know, there's probably probably half the songs that we had, uh, I'd say half and half in terms of, you know, some are a lot better live than on the record. And then in other situations, you know, there's some cool stuff that we were able to do recording wise that, uh, you know, never played out in the live situation as well. And uh, I don't think it really bothered us too much, but because uh, we, you know, some bands like to make records to promote their live show, and some people like to play live shows to promote their records. And I think we had a equal interest in both. Uh, mm. We really enjoy making records, and we also really enjoyed playing, but I don't think we ever had a hard and fast rule about, you know, not recording anything that we couldn't reproduce live or the only reason we're making this is so people can like zone out and listen to it on headphones and we'll never be able to play it live. I mean, we wanted to try to keep it reasonable. You now we were also, you know, mimicking some tricks and uh, sounds that we heard on records from bands that we love. So the, uh, the tones that you guys are using on your instruments is so important because it, it just means that, you know, everybody gets their space essentially. And it's um, funny. I think- that's funny because they're horrendously bad. <laughs> I think they're great. I think the tones on this are awesome. I, I wanted always, to ask. We always, we always talked about how, uh, I mean, we still talk about how it seemed like we could make good records for other bands, but ours never sounded very good. <laughs> oh, that's ridiculous. I, I think the tones on this are awesome. I, I want, like, did you guys spend, you know, a good amount of time trying to figure that out? Did you, or was it just like, I'm going to tune my amp, you know, set it up the way that I like the way it sounds, and we're going to play the songs? Or did you kind of go back and forth to, say like okay well you know john has got his bass kind of eq'd this way so i'm gonna eq my amp this way a little bit and then so that can be heard over the violin i'm gonna change you know not quite i'm not gonna play the kind of chorus i'm gonna play that kind of chord was there that kind of organic interplay going on to make sure that you weren't stepping over top of each other i Uh, think we were i think as uh you know recording guys we were smart enough to know that we should do that but i don't think we did (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> i think it was you know once again a personal interpretation of what i thought was going to work with his sound and what he thought was going to work with my sound and i don't think anyone really sorted out until we had to come up with a mix to give the uh whoever was releasing it <laughs> yeah at which point neil usually sorted it out we were like great yeah. neil thanks you put it together <laughs> sounds good thanks man we hit a little bit on best of the worst earlier and you had mentioned how this was going to be, quote unquote, the, the single. That was your intention. Well, it's what we thought. You know, I don't think it was our intention, but it was our pick. If there was, you know, it was your best was guess. The... Sure. Was there? I know that there had been. A, I don't know when it factors into the timeline of the band. I know there was an article in, in Alternative Press magazine. Um, was that around the time of this album, or was it prior to and for the Ugly album? Yeah, it was actually a review for the Ugly album. And that was like a huge uh, boost for us in a lot of ways in terms of recognition. You know, it was a huge ego boost, of course. I mean, we were very excited about it. It was a huge uh, break for us to get that sort of attention. Now, with, um, with, that, with that attention and then also with getting Ski Instructor not only on CD101, but you mentioned on the college radio in, in certain markets nationally, were you guys talking to either larger indie labels or major labels? when this stuff was going on? Yeah, we did have some conversation with uh, a couple different labels, and it was educational. <laughs> Enlighten us. I wouldn't say fruitful. <laughs> 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 you 
there was this label that like wasn't big who we had talked to a few times and you know didn't have much money but we're kind of excited about it and uh i think we ended up in, you know just i'm not sure how that conversation ended but it ended and then i think you know the the educational part was a few months later uh Joan Osborne came out with her first big breakthrough hit, and that was the label. Actually, it was Blue Gorilla was the name of that label. You know, we were like hmm. Blue Gorilla. Who, you know, so yeah. so what? What's Blue Gorilla? Like, yeah. we're fine with Burnt Sienna if Blue Gorilla. <laughs> <still around. laughs> right. You know, and as it turns out, they uh, obviously had some great resources that uh, we just didn't really take advantage of that opportunity. Um, we talked to Atlantic off and on over the course of a few years about uh, trying to do something with them. And I think one of the frustrating things was, I think a lot of the people we talked to were very much the mindset of, well, you know, when we put out records, we, you know, from the major label standpoint, it was, you guys are too indie. And from the indie standpoint, it was, you guys are too major poppy sounding. And, you know, so with independent labels, they didn't really have the money to push us in a direction or market us in a direction that would have yielded results worth, you know, a larger investment than they're used to doing. And then with the major label situation, it was almost like, you know, we don't make records unless we drop 2 million and you guys are not going to sell anywhere near of making that back. So it was almost like, you know, we were too indie and, you know, one direction or the other. And, you know, what frustrated me was, you know, I was trying to conversations with people that were just like, well, well, I'm not sure. I don't care which direction you push us. I mean, we're going to make the same music. You know, it's, uh, if you want to hook us up with a producer that can like do one or the other more successfully than we're currently doing, then let's do that. Yeah. And I, I don't think a lot of people are into the business of, uh, you know, exploratory, <laughs> you know, experimentation with their money. So it's um, not the 1970s anymore where you get three albums to figure out exactly who you are and then they yeah. finally decide to push you nationally well right, we, did, we right. have we have talked about a lot of bands though that in the 90s got some ridiculous deals that you know yeah haven't happened was, it was the it was basically the last time any of those deals ever happened you know was then so yeah but those first um, records of those bands was amazing you know and those were the best records those bands ever made mm-hmm. true so it's tough to say well like i think this band has potential let's you know buy it you know i think that was really uh we didn't have uh we really didn't produce any of the telltale signs of like what would be the recipe for a successful large investment i think my boss has said that to me too recently (laughs) (laughs) so it was sort of like we're gonna invest in you well what we're talking about is we might potentially invest in you but we want you to change in one direction or the other and we don't know what that will yield no, I don't. So yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone ever said, "Hey, we want to change you." I think it was more obviously like, "Hey, you don't play guitar parts like the guy from Everclear does." You know, like yeah, that was you know, literally brought up. You know, just like that. Play and, more uh, power chords. Oh yeah. Well, you know, play more hooks. You know, something that's more obvious to us that hey, we can push this to radio or. And, uh, you know, like the poppiest bands we were listening to was, uh, you know, The Wedding Present and The Poster Children and, you know, My Bloody Valentine. Uh, we were really into a lot of bands that never sold a lot of records. <laughs> anybody, yeah, anybody who's into My Bloody Valentine as a reference usually is not 
selling 10 million albums. <laughs> right, right, right. Like, you know, I'm thinking like, wow, Bob Mould, you know, he's my idol. <laughs> you know, I don't think he ever sold you know, a ton of records. So We talked about Tubby a little bit, so I want to move on to St. Louis, track seven. And I want to highlight a lyric. Maybe you can enlighten us about it. It's the line, a highway runs from my house to yours. You wrote that into a song I adore. Is that about someone and something specific? And is does it reference St. Louis, the title of the song? Yeah, we have a, a friend that lives in St. Louis, and uh, in high school, uh, we were super good friends, and uh, she ended up moving to St. Louis and became a really well-known songwriter there. Uh, so when we would tour, we would stay with her, and uh, uh, she came to Columbus with her band, and Neil and I uh, made a record for Brandy Johnson, great songwriter, and uh, still in the biz, working with... Uh, I think she was doing a Justin Bieber tour recently. He does like a tour production work now. So all the big bands. I think she was working uh, Rock on the Range last time it was uh, in Columbus there. Now, in the chorus of this song, there's a double. Is that you? Because it doesn't sound like you. It almost sounds like a, I don't say, it sounds like a different voice. I don't, it, did you, is there an effect on what you were doing or is that somebody else singing that? I think Fitz might have tried uh, one or two vocals on something, but uh, I don't recall. But I'm pretty sure that that's probably me. It might be that line, actually, which I don't... Sometimes I don't know what the chorus is versus what is just a repeated line. So it might just be the highway runs from my house to yours line, because I think that... Is is it in the song more than once? You know what? That that is Fitz, now that you mention it. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah. It's almost like a... Uh, on higher part you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Almost like a falsetto kind of sounding thing. Yeah, and you don't really sing a lot of falsetto. You just have, like you said, you have a tenor range, so you're not doing, you know, Johnson Brother type falsettos. <laughs> wow. For those familiar with the Johnson there. Brothers. I, I, I actually wish I could, but uh, I can't get up there anymore. <laughs> I'd forgot but, that, uh, that John did uh, a little bit of background vocals here and there. Okay. Uh, Deafening. Deafening, yes. This is one of my favorite songs on the record. Probably because it addresses the age-old problem of guys obsessed with music and the girls who don't understand it. (laughs) Yes, Uh, once again, it's another love song. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Actually, one of the things I wanted to focus in on this song is there's there's... quite a bit of slower tempoed songs but they're not necessarily quiet you guys get loud 
on a lot of these songs, which a lot of bands are not necessarily good at doing. Did you guys feel comfortable? And was this something that took time to develop in terms of playing slow, but playing um, loud and heavy at points and creating dynamics? Whereas a lot of bands, when they get into a slow song, they might just stick to sort of a quiet format for a song. Or they struggle to fill the space. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I think it's a matter of uh, wanting to sound like you mean it. it's slow doesn't mean it's it's light you know so i think it's uh that song is sort of an exercise in the slow loud rocking (laughs) i think some of our uh material can be boiled down to you know almost this is an exercise in blah 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 Mm -hmm. and i feel like with uh deafening there's like a lot of restraint that is employed to like keep the tempo where it's at and uh but i think we've gotten a lot of uh, comments over the years from uh, fellow musicians about how like we have solid tempo, <laughs> and I think it's a you know it's a patience thing, and I think it's a you know an exercise in like how to you know concentrate on you know with this particular song. There's like a pounding that is the delivery of it. I mean that's what we, you know that's what I like about the song, and that's kind of like what it's about. I think is that delivery, you know, more so mm-hmm. than the melody or the you know, the parts of the music itself. It's, it's really that uh, sort of the way it's handed out. So Mentioning the rhythm, one of the things I noticed about Neil's playing is how sparse it can be, even though it can be driving. And I noticed that he doesn't use a lot of, he doesn't do a lot of fills. Um, if anything, it's just like a single snare hit and then he moves into a new part, whereas a more um, showy drummer might, you know, throw in a, run through the toms and he tends to use the toms very sparingly i'm thinking of like in terms of ski instructor he brings in the toms for like the part of the chorus was that something that you guys talked about in terms of his playing that he was it almost has this is a stretch but it almost has like a kraut rock feel in a lot of parts where he's like just boom kick snare kick snare he's just like on the beat and it's very simple but it's like completely locked in to the you know the momentum he, of the song. He's, he's leaving space for for the uh, the interplay between the guitar and the violin. You know, is that and, what it and, is? 
Well, <laughs> that's the way thought, it results. And I guess the question is, was did that just happen, or was there, you know, a struggle to make that happen? I don't think any of us are very good. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not true. That's I, just I think if you wanted to like leave room for something to happen, I think we'd all be staring at each other like, what's <laughs> supposed to happen here? <laughs> I mean, I think it was, you know, I think it's more about. Uh, you know, in one area that we are on the same page is, is, you know, when we're working on stuff is, you know, how much is too filled in and how much is not enough. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that was definitely, you know, a conscious aspect of us putting stuff together uh, in the recordings and, uh, you know, live as far as like, you know, how much too much and, uh, you know, how much can we get away with minimally and still, like you said, fill up the space. So, mm-hmm. I don't think there was much discussion about it. I think that's one of the areas we really agreed on how to how to assemble things. So you never had to have the uh, the conversation of, uh, hey, dude, could you play a little less? That I, I think a lot of people in bands, you know, have to have that conversation with their drummer. Is that uh, I'm I'm, I'm really that. who would have to have that conversation <laughs> with their drummer? I can't think of anybody. <laughs> I've heard that there's some people, you know, that may have to have that conversation. I'm assuming that that conversation didn't have to happen very often. <laughs> Not much, no. Okay. okay. Uh, when we get to tracks... I mean, if, if it did have to happen, we would just walk over there and move remove one of the toms from the drum kit. <laughs> oh, that, that's a brilliant that's, idea. Wish that'd be the entire... Happened. There wouldn't be a discussion so much as it just... Right. <laughs> I should, we should have tried that. Oh, anyway. Anyway, when we get to tracks 9 through 12... We noticed a distinct shift in sort of the tempo and energy of the album. It almost seems like it gets louder and crazier towards the end of the record with those four songs. Uh, Heart Attack and Crane, Operation Prestige have a lot of, you know, energy and dissonance. And was that a conscious thing to, like, not make the album peter out with a bunch of slow songs like a lot of albums do? I think it was uh maybe i we might have thought that the songs would be the hardest to like get a grip on like for mm-hmm. people like you know i don't know if like a lot of people would relate to that and i think like crane operation prestige was almost kind of like i think that's on the record because we wanted to make it <laughs> i don't know if we ever had any faith about you know people enjoying it or liking it or relating to it or understanding it 
I think we disliked making it. We wanted to make sure it was on the record, but I don't know if that ever came up in the conversation about when we were doing the order, like, oh, this one needs to be right here. <laughs> I think it was more like, and Crane, well, we'll just throw that on here. <laughs> yeah. I think we really like it. I mean, that's one of my favorite pieces in terms of putting together uh, music with those guys, but you know, I have no idea. I think it's successful as an art piece, but probably not as a musical uh, sing-along number. Well, it sort of shows <laughs> the, uh, the the post-hardcore aspect of the band. I mean, how uh, you know, sort of the jaw, the Jawbox sort of... Uh... Yeah, that was definitely... Uh, I mean, we love Jawbox and that was certainly uh, some stuff that we did that was like in that zone in terms of what we mm-hmm. considered the louder or heavier stuff for us that was jagged and dissonant so was that material it sounds like it could have been maybe earlier than some of the other like say a ski instructor best the worst is that true yeah Yeah, that's true i think we came up with uh crane and heart attack from uh, a house we lived on over by the bright and clean that's the house that burnt down but those are some songs that i think we started in the basement of that house yeah and then of course the more fresh material for at the time was on the front half of the record like Ski Instructor and Best of the Worst. Those songs are a little bit aggressive guitar-wise. And you mentioned, you know, My Bloody Valentine. I don't think of My Bloody Valentine as a aggressive guitar band. But I do think of, you mentioned Bob Mould, some of the Husker Du era guitar playing. Besides Mould and My Bloody Valentine, can you talk a little bit about guitar influences and where your guitar background is? Because we've heard you talk about, I know when we were in the studio, you talked a lot about being a fan of like early Depeche Mode, stuff that we weren't even familiar with, like pre-People Are People, Depeche yeah. Mode. So I'm interested in like what sort of bands were you that were guitar-oriented were you sort of growing up on? I actually didn't listen to any guitar-oriented bands until college, really. I mean, in high school, R.E.M. sort of blew up, so... I started to listen to, I guess, towards the end of high school, sort of R.E.M., uh, The Cure, Jesus and Mary Chain. You know, like at the time, those were sort of the only guitar stuff I listened to. But even then, all those bands were half, you know, keyboard driven. And then prior to that, I'd say I listened to almost all, you know, synth techno pop stuff. I was a big Howard Jones fan and uh, OMD, Alphaville. One of my favorite bands, and it really amazed me when that song uh, "Forever Young" became a huge hit in Australia, and then spanned over here to the U.S. Uh, a few years ago. Um, because it's, you know, thirty some years old, <laughs> right. and it's it sounds modern and fresh. I mean, it's been remixed and mastered and covered, and you know, all twisted around to freshen it up. But it's uh, amazing to hear that it has such a stain power and resonance to people now. Yeah, I think with Depeche Mode, there's like a, I think what influenced me a lot about it was the sort of melodramatic, like the lyrics were really sort of bad and, uh, you know, they made equally as bad videos. They have just known for like really terrible videos, but there's there's something about that like melodramatic, uh, insulated, uh, you know, sort of thing that I really loved. And I think like lyrically, I've always been sort of, not you know connected to like writing lyrics that you know they have like wide appeal or anything and it's all pretty you know introverted sort of stuff and i think that's what i like about those guys but you know in uh, college i started listening to more aggressive guitar stuff and uh 
And the funny thing is, when I went to college, I had a Rickenbacker 330, uh, which was a really great guitar. But, you know, I was like sort of transitioning from keyboards in the guitar world. And it seemed like, uh, you know, I was thinking, like, I can't rock on this thing. You know, like, this guitar doesn't rock. You know, this sounds like the Beatles. You know, I can't rock on this thing. And, I'm, you know, I want to try to rock. You know, so I sold that after listening to a lot of the Pixies. Pretty much traded that straight in for a Jazzmaster. You know, and then, of course, a week later, I start seeing the, you know, Who videos and, you know, Fugazi. <laughs> so, you know, those guys are clearly rocking on Rickenbackers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was like, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, maybe it's just me. You know, the Kevin Shields guitar was, a, you know, Jazzmasters. So I was like, yeah, I gotta have that. But I think at that time, I was really full on into the poster children. And they were a huge influence on me in terms of, rhythm so like we were talking earlier about uh you know maybe the time is four four but it's where the accent falls and poster children was the first band that you know showed me how that could work remember i went to see uh the uh, wedding present and the poster children was opening and i had like looked forward to the show for a long time and uh the poster children opened the set i was like so floored that like i think two songs into the wedding present i ended up leaving so i was like totally <laughs> over Right. I was I had been like so blown away <laughs> by yeah. the poster children. I, I was just like that's enough, like mind blowing for, for, for one night. <laughs> Need to rest my mind. Last song on the album is "Tidal Wave." Now I remember you guys. Correct me if I'm wrong. Closing sets with this song and sort of allowing it to expand in the live setting. I don't want to say jamming. You guys weren't the Grateful Dead or anything. But just turning it into, uh, you know, throwing some feedback and, and just making the song a little bit longer. Was that was this song sort of written with that intent that you could sort of improvise towards the end of the song? Because I don't really remember a lot of the other tunes from the record being, this wasn't Rush where you were, or, you know, a, a jazz band where you guys were like taking best of the worst and turning into a 15 minute long jam <laughs> the rest of the album is pretty concise in terms of yeah you it seemed like the, goes. The, yeah the, everything was pretty stuck was was stuck to in terms of the album version except for tidal wave am, am i right about that i mean quite honestly i don't recall ever playing it live <laughs> <laughs> see now i think this is what i remember i remember you guys playing it at Comfest when you guys played the main stage on either Friday or Saturday night. And I remember, I think I remember you guys closing with it and there being like just a giant swell of like guitar noise and violin and feedback. And that's how kind of the set ended. But maybe I'm completely imagining that. Well, I think that that would be a, uh, it sounds like that would be a terrible choice to end a set at Comfest with. But the way you just described it, it sounds pretty glorious. <laughs> <laughs> it's in my. It's in my make-believe head then. That's what it's, happened. Uh, no, I mean, I'm sure that we had we did that on a couple of occasions. And uh, I think there was something about that, uh, the chord structure at the end that sort of lent itself to some noise and some sort of free-for-all. But like you said, it, it wouldn't have come across as like a jammy sort of thing because I think where we are all sort of hanging around note-wise, you know, I think uh, made for an interesting sort of free-for-all instead of a typical you know, noodle fest. But I don't know how conscious that was. You know, that was a uh, recording thing that we then tried to, you know, replicate that 
you know, I don't know how successful or not that that was, but uh, I, I recall really liking uh, what we came up with from the studio wise. It was fun. I can't see you through. This, this ends with maybe one of my favorite hidden tracks of all time. There's some sort of recording of people we don't know who they are, but they're uh, fascinated with this, uh, what, what they're referring to as a cassette tape. Uh, what's right. the story behind the hidden track on this? And who are those uh, hilarious that's people? My, uh, that's my grandfather and my mm. grandmother and my mother talking about... My dad had just purchased this newfangled contraption, so it was the the dawn of the cassette tape. Growing up, my aunt and uncle lived in Alaska, and then we lived in California for a little while. So the uh, my grandparents, my aunt and uncle, and then us, we all had these reel-to-reel recorders. I mean, I was just a baby, um, but they would like uh, you know we would do interviews with each other or the parents would interview all the kids and then we would send the tapes around and then everyone sort of, you know, <laughs> <sound like> that. <laughs> that's, that's how awesome. we did it back then. Right. Uh, right. You know, so we would have these tapes and then, uh, a few, you know, years ago, uh, around that time, actually that we were working on that record. Uh, my grandfather gave me all the reel to reel tapes and we had the machine. So I was able to copy those on the CD and then we were, uh, you know, as I sat and listened to all those hours of recordings of my cousins and brothers and I uh, growing up, I came across that and knew that we had to put that somewhere. I love it. So what they're saying is uh, essentially in it that somebody has cassettes and the other person has reel-to-reel, and they're trying to figure out if, like, we can record it on this, but they won't be able to hear it because they don't <laughs> Right, <have>. right. Yeah, <laughs> so, so the idea that, like, my dad had this cassette player, uh, he was going to get it. Uh, yeah. You know, because it was the new thing, but it wasn't going to work in terms of sending it to my aunt Jan or sending it to my grandpa because no one had a way of listening to a, you know, the new tapes or, you know, right. vice versa. So it's I love it. It's just such it's such a quintessential like conversation that parent like you can imagine your parents having about you know technology, YouTube, whatever. Like insert subject matter <laughs> right. here. Just the way they refer to everything. It just it's it's really uh it's really yeah. funny. 
we need to wrap up with a kind of look back overall question, which is um, you mentioned a little bit that you weren't happy with, I guess, some of the the sounds in the record. But what you know, thir- this is 13 years old now. Um, I don't know if you've listened to it that much recently, but w- like, what are your impressions now of the album? And if you could do things differently, or is there anything that you would do differently? Resing um, it. You'd resing it. <laughs> Or would you just it. remix it so that the vocals were up higher in the mix? No, just re-sing it. Okay. I'm pretty Why? into everything else. <laughs> mute the drums. Terms- <laughs> oh, <you> mute the- <laughs> <laughs> just replace them with uh, with um, digital. <laughs> yeah. No, I think feel- it really has to just uh, you know it's it's uh, I think I've come to grips with uh, you know letting go of uh, things that are already out there. I think one one conversation I had with, uh, I guess I'm romanticizing that. It wasn't a personal conversation I had with uh, Ian from Fugazi. He was talking to a group of people, and I happened to be there. <laughs> but, uh, you know, someone was asking him about a, a recording, like, uh, you know, you work on it, and since you have unlimited studio time, are you in the studio? Like, how do you know, uh, you know, when it's done? How do you know when the you know when the record's done? And uh, one comment he made was, "Well, you just have to. You can't give it an honest review unless it's done. So sometimes you just have to say it's done, <laughs> you know, right? Like, right. And then, and then uh, you know, let the reviews come in after the fact, and you're like, well, I guess we didn't finish that, you know, or I guess we uh, could have touched this up or redone that or whatever. But like, you're never really gonna know until it's until you just say that it's done and let it." you know, put it out there. So I've tried to sort of embrace that as a, uh, you know, attitude in terms of, uh, you know, no regrets in terms of uh, past albums. Like, well, that guitar was out of tune. I guess I didn't sing that well. You know, the snare sound is terrible or, uh, you know, I guess we blew the, you know, bass tone on this song. Well, you know what? It's, that's going to happen. <laughs> Has it ever appealed you to, to um, have you ever considered you know, doing an album where you handed handed those reins off to somebody else, or is that just so integrated into the pro the overall process of making a record that you couldn't ever do that? Uh, I'd like to do that. I, I actually would love to do that. But the way that I write is part of the recording process, so uh, that person would have to move in with me for about a year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that could be hard. I mean, I I would love to uh, work in a way that I could uh, write some stuff and you know record some stuff and hand it off to someone, and I'm sure that'll be happening uh, shortly. Would you so, consider going like the Rick Rubin route, where you like record a bunch of stuff and then send it to somebody or work with somebody, and they go, you know what, I really like this part, but I think you're you're you know you're repeating yourself here, or I think you could double this part, or does in terms of more like feedback rather than strictly speaking somebody who's recording you is has rick been requesting to work with me no i'm just saying in terms of like because that yes. sort of a producer because, because yes i'd be happy to send him my stuff I get <laughs> hey you never know you never know that He's, seems you know that, that seems to be the way everybody's going to produce the records in the next <laughs> five yeah. to ten years yeah. yeah just send me your stuff i'll tell you what i think yeah that's all thanks start again no i think that would be great i uh I love that idea. I just rarely ever have have all the parts that I want until it's 
98% a mix. <laughs> right, right. You know, like uh, I have a couple of tunes on the on my new record that are kind of all there except the vocal track, you know, and I think that uh, once I come across the drum sound, that's the perfect mix for it. I'll suddenly stumble across something that'll inspire some vocals. I don't need anyone sweating me about it. (laughs) Maybe I do. Uh, Maybe it'd be done by now if I did. (laughs) You do tend to take a little bit between albums. Yeah, that happens. My solo album came out in 2004, so... Um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for it's... your money. <laughs> <laughs> TikTok, TikTok. One of the things we like to do it at the end of each episode is is kind of give a comparison to bands that are around today or that are more familiar to a broader audience. We have fans who listen in Australia and the UK, and they might not be familiar with Pretty Mighty Mighty. And so we try to say well if you like such and such a band you probably would like this record when you want to go check it out jay and i talked a little bit about bands that we thought uh, oh you know this band kind of sounds like an aspect of pretty mighty Mighty. well we said death cab for cutie like you said we also said uh early death cab more earlier than the than the later more poppy stuff but definitely Uh death cab band of horses was a, a band that came up I don't know if you're familiar with Band of Horses. Yeah, I love Band of Horses. Yeah. Do you hear? Do you hear a little bit? I hear it in the vocal a lot. I'm flattered Just if to... you hear that. I, I love that band. So yeah, that'd be that's um, great. Use that one. Sure. Okay. Swerve Driver. How about <laughs> who, Swerve who else, Driver? Who else is wildly successful? Throw that on there. Yeah. Just Swerve Driver. Bieber. Just a Bieber. There you go. <laughs> I was never. Uh, I was never a big Swerve Driver fan. Neil and uh, Fitz uh, definitely you know, are or were. So I'm sure that they would be into that. Or they would know more than I would. Oh man, I love Dinosaur Jr., but I don't know if uh, anything resembles the guitar attitude on on, uh, those records. But uh, I'd like to think that's the case. Well, I think there's a sonic... I think that there's there's some... You know, I think I'd like to think that the interest or fan base might uh, cross over a little bit. But yeah, I I don't think that... uh, not that I don't want it to, but I don't think that there's nearly the guitar ferocity uh, that you'd find in those records. A band that we just actually did a show on that is it's still around and that they play shows every once in a while, but they're not recording any new material is Hum. Oh yeah, we were we were pretty big fans of Hum. I think some of the material we wrote we thought was supposed to sound like Hum. I don't know if it ever came out that way, but. Uh, I think in our minds there was a couple of tracks that we thought were in that vein. Apparent to me uh, when we revisited both albums uh, within the last month here, I think the uh-huh. the similarities between the two bands was more apparent now than it was at the time. Uh, great. You know, it's, it's That's great news. <laughs> and, and they're an awesome band. So, uh, A band I, I, I've always thought you sounded like that you've probably never even heard, but I know we have some listeners in the UK, so I thought I'd throw this out. It's a band called Low Gold. Um, their first record huh. um, has some yeah. similarities. I haven't. Heard they get that. a little slower later, but uh, they're a bigger band in Europe than they are here. But uh, if you're a fan of that band, I think you should definitely check out Pretty Mighty Mighty. Another one. Again, this is probably more in the Dinosaur Junior end of it, but Built to Spill. Oh yeah. In terms of the uh, I, a lot of the <clears> guitar <throat> interplay in Built to Spill reminds me of the violin and guitar interplay 
Yeah, I would, um, I would love. I would say that's the case. I think we were all big fans of uh, the Built to Spill records. The way that those were produced, I think sound-wise, was definitely you know up our alley in terms of you know sonic combinations of stuff. So, well, for our listeners, if you're a fan of any of those bands, there's a good chance you're going to be a fan of Pretty Mighty Mighty. So you should definitely check them out. Um, I don't know where you're going to find the record. Hopefully, Neil <laughs> will get on that. And uh, you can buy it from Amazon. That doesn't help John much, but. Uh... No. If you get your hands on it, it does. Uh, that's one way you can go. The good news is that you can hear the normal EP almost anywhere. It's on Spotify, yes. and, uh, and it's seven tracks, and it's not uh, a, too far of a departure from this stuff. So that'll at least get you familiar with the band. There's more rapping on the, the normal EP <laughs> than there is on the regular album, but that's true. I forgot you guys brought in the. Uh, the you DJ took in that. Uh, yeah, you went that kid kid rock route for that al- for that EP. So. In the MC. My uh, my uh, <laughs> stellar record is on iTunes as well. That's true. And or, uh, or Tim has some in his basement. So you alluded that you're working on some new material. Can you, before we uh, head out here, give us an update of what you've been up to and if we can expect to hear some stuff? Uh, yes. I'll send you guys copies shortly. Oh, Sweet. that was <laughs> we'll faster than vo- I expected. We'll have vocals <laughs> on it. Uh, yes, most of it. I, uh, <laughs> I, I wish I could elaborate, but uh, top secret. Oh, <laughs> again, Rick Rubin. Yeah, the, uh, Rick. Okay, you'll have to check with Rick. Okay. Excellent. And you can go to um, you have a John Chin website, which I believe is John Chin dot com, and then John Chin WordPress. Yeah, John Chin well. Music uh, WordPress dot com, where you can follow the daily goings ons of uh, Mr. John Chin. And uh, anything else you'd like to plug while we're at the uh, end of our show here? Any um, gigs you're going to be playing or anything like that? Well, I'm going to be heading back to uh, Columbus in August for a couple of shows. That would be release shows for this new solo record. Uh, there's one at uh, Ace of Cups and then one at uh, the Tree Tree Bar, which I'm oh, very cool. excited about. Cause I, haven't, uh, I was there like the opening night, but uh, haven't really been back since, obviously. So... Uh, I'm going to make it back and uh, start some shows. Cool. Very cool. John, thank you so much. For Thanks for having me, on. guys. That's uh, great. Love the show and uh, keep rocking. Thank Excellent. you. And Neil, you know what you have to do. Get on it. All right. Thanks, everybody. Uh, if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. That's it. Thanks, uh, Jay, for joining me on a extended but worth it episode. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Want to leave feedback? Join the conversation at digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed. While you're there, support the podcast by visiting our donation and merchandise pages. And thanks for listening.
that's a good deal. I hope it's one of these that you can use this type of, yeah, of uh, uh, coil. You know, these new K-sets are rel relatively cheap. Oh. But the K-set like has a, a cartridge that you put in, see? Oh. And, uh, what do you I, mean by that? Then we well, it's, it's, a, it's a cartridge, something like those cartridges that you put in. Yeah, well, he said you could buy those tapes that you put in cars. Well, that's what this is, is a K-set, see? Oh. Well, and this won't work with that. Mm. Oh, then we can't send them uh, Because I don't have any way of recording on a K-set. And he don't have any way of listening to this. Yeah. Well, what you mean? All you can do is play car tapes on that thing. You can make your own. Well, tapes you can make your that. own tapes, yeah. Yeah. But when you make your own tapes, uh, it has to be on one of these cartridge type things. Well, I guess he got it so he could record lectures and stuff he goes to too. You yeah. Know? Well, that's a good thing. He'll use it. He'll yeah. probably get a lot of use. He'll use it. it.